Welcome to the Rappaport Diamond Podcast, and now your host, Avi Kravitz. Welcome to another episode of the Rappaport Diamond Podcast. On this episode, I got to have a one-on-one with our news editor, Joshua Friedman. We talk about all the industry developments that are shaping the market ahead of the holiday season, as well as the news stories that have stood out and what's on our radar for the coming weeks. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy our discussion. Hi, Joshua. Um, Nice to see you and to be on the podcast with you one-on-one again for the first time in quite some time that we haven't had our one-on-one podcast discussion so it's great to be back with you how's everything oh fine thanks uh good to be uh good to be back here Abby. I've, I've i've missed them too um yeah and it's been a strange period for us um covering the industry it's been rather quiet i think um in terms of the news flow which we expect through july august when the the trade is uh, is kind of on its summer vacations in different parts of the world but that's the slow feed has extended into september somehow i, I don't remember it, our news flow being this um sort of space in in previous years would you agree with that, or am I imagining it? I think so. My instinct is that there's a lot of uncertainty in the market, and people are waiting a little bit to, before they make any major changes, any big announcements, things like that, for the market to pick up a bit. A bit, but at the same time, things aren't bad enough that there's lots of bad news going on. So yeah, it's a bit of a lull. Right. We cover the good and the bad, and uh, and that's probably a good explanation. Or, or speculation that uh, that companies are sort of waiting waiting out there, and it's not to say that nothing's going on because now is the time when companies are preparing for the holiday season. You would imagine within the trade as well, in the wholesale business anyway, there's a lot of activity going on. I would imagine. Yeah, I, I still think people are fairly positive as well for the holidays, and there will be a lot of trading going on at the moment. Maybe not the same level as there was a year ago, but still fairly busy. Well, it does seem to be some sort of a disconnect between the sentiment within the within, let's say, the dealer market, particularly in the international centers outside of the United States and the the expectation at retail for the holiday season that we, we seem to see a lot. There, there's a feeling that there is still that positive and optimistic outlook for, for the U.S. retail jewelry, jewelry sales um, in October through December. Yes, I would agree with that, Avi. And I think that's, that some of that disconnect probably comes because the dealers, not all of them, but many dealers are supplying, would normally supply around the world, to both to the US and to the Far East. And at the moment, the US is fairly strong and the Far East is very quiet, particularly China. So we're hearing relatively good things from the US. Yeah, I do agree that I think China is the game changer at the moment, that the, the feedback we're getting from those dealers and, and from um, suppliers of Polish manufacturers, perhaps, is that China is very slow at the moment and that they're relying on the US. And, and while the outlook for retail is positive and optimistic, I think retailers, jewelers in the, in the US are also still cautious to buy too much inventory, given the economic slowdown that's, that has been experienced there. Yeah, I mean, the feedback we're getting from basically pretty much every retailer when they announce you know, their results, their trading updates, all these things is there's a combination of generally strong economic trends, a fairly strong job market. That's something that keeps on coming up. But on the other side, there's inflation, geopolitical uncertainty. 
And certainly, and the bigger impact there, I think, at the moment is is inflation, and particularly the impact on the lower to mid income sectors, um, where we've seen a bit of a slowdown. That's certainly something that's been reflected in companies like Signet, which kind of uh, cater to the whole range of of income groups in the U.S. Yeah, and all, and then there's also the you know the, the the stock market volatility and the decline in the in the markets that we've seen in the last um, week or two have also give that signal of uh, of caution affecting the the middle to upper income brackets as well. So, um, but we are moving into uh, as we as we move into October, um, we 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 enter some sort of a earnings season. So we will be hearing from these companies both on the retail side and and also on the mining side, we'll get some results coming up in the in the next few weeks. So maybe we should enjoy the quiet while it lasts, um, because uh, I would expect some some um, sort of insightful announcements, if if not big announcements, insightful sort of earnings reports that we can read more into the market at the moment. Although we just we live for earnings reports. That's what we're here for. We do, we do, as as technical as they can be. But we did come off a De Beers site and a, a cycle of rough selling in the last week. Um, the 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 site was was last week, um, mid mid September, as we're recording now at the end of September. And again, that the the site and the rough market in general seemed to signal some some sort of cautionary activity within the rough buying and and uh, midstream inventory management for one's of a better phrase yeah it's the same sort of mixed influences where there's a degree of as has been for a few months a degree of shortage just because of the russia situation and the lack of goods coming in from arosa um but still there's a lot of uncertainty a lot of simply less demand because of less consumer demand because of the shutdowns that have been in china so what we've seen in the rough market is that the, the secondary markets so the people that buy from what used to be de beers and arosa and now is mostly just de beers and resell to manufacturers so dealers they're selling at much lower premiums than they used to so they're getting much less money when they resell these boxes of of diamonds, of rough diamonds, and also demand at the De Beers site itself seems to be lower. Although the information we're getting is that it hasn't actually been a De Beers hasn't actually changed their prices; they've kept prices at the same level, which they often do even when the market is quiet because they they don't want to. Well, a few reasons why they do that: they don't want to take the you know the, the profit hit from reduced sales, but also they don't want to damage market sentiment and cause a, a, a kind of a spiral in prices where. If they reduce rough prices, then polished prices come down as well. So, so that that's the picture we're seeing really. Right. I, I think there was um, some expectation that the beers would reduce prices um, on more broadly at the last site, given the the declines that um, we've seen in the polished market and also on the secondary market and on the auction circuit, as you as you as you mentioned. Um, you know, I think. I think one aspect of rough pricing that um, that I'm thinking about more, and and that's really I'm following my my discussion with with Kieran Hodgson, our guest on on the last episode of the podcast, and as a research analyst, that the mining companies really also need to look at their costs, and so mm-hmm. there's also sort of that hesitancy to reduce prices because there's a cost basis that they need to protect, and so there's a lot more that goes into the decision than we see on the surface. And of course, this the slight downturn we're going through at the moment is really nothing compared with what happened in the first half of 2020 when the beers were very, both the beers and our roads were very careful not to reduce prices until things really picked up quite a lot later in the year, in about August of that year. 
Right. Well, they were also, the situations are different because I think in 2020, they weren't selling. So they froze their sales and, mm. and in that way also protected their, yeah. their pricing. But maybe there's some comparison that um, perhaps De Beers is prepared to sell less and um, and protect its price its price level. We we also need to remember as, and keep an eye on on what's happening in terms of polished inventory because you spoke about shortages in the in the market, but that's really referring to rough. And from what we are seeing on on Rapnet and from our discussions with uh, with uh, with manufacturers, polished inventory in the midstream is is still yes. on the up. It's still quite and and historically high. And so um, that would also, that maybe would be the most telling indicator or explanation of why there isn't that same sort of demand for rough at the beer sites that we have seen in previous years at the September site. That's a, that's a good point. I agree. And, and bearing in mind as well that the Indian manufacturing sector tends to buy a lot of rough at this time of year because they're ramping up production before the Diwali break. But again, I think because of that play with the, the polished inventory that we're not seeing that this year. We're also hearing a lot of, sort of in, information about some of the, in the Indian manufacturing sector having some liquidity difficulties and trying to get cheaper, trying to get quite deep discounts on rough when they buy from suppliers in other markets. So yeah, there are a few reasons for concern. Right. Um, as we mentioned earlier, there's so many different parts playing on the market at the moment from the, you know, the dynamic in the rough market, the dynamic in the polished market, which is um, you know, somewhat, you know, it's, re it's reacting to both the rough and the retail sector, which, um, which as we said earlier, the retail sector seems to be um, at least optimistic for, for the holiday season. Mm -hmm. um, so, so just to change the, the subject a little bit, um, Joshua, and, and maybe staying on the, on the rough market, we spoke about El Rosa being off, off the market, but one of the more interesting news stories that came our way in the last two weeks was that Grib Diamonds, which um, sells rough from the Grib Mine, uh, the Grib Mine being in Russia, has cancelled its October sale. And maybe you want to give us a bit of background on what led to that. What are the influencing factors that brought about that announcement by Grib? Yes. So Grib Diamonds is based in Belgium, and for many years it has it has sold production from the mine with which it shares a name. That mine is owned by what's now called AGD Diamonds, a privately owned company that used to, the grid mine used to be owned by Luke Oil a few years ago until AGD bought it. It wasn't actually called AGD at the time, but I'm not going to try and pronounce the previous name. Traditionally, they sold in Antwerp. Recently, so a few times this year, they've been selling in Dubai and they had a, an auction that, that happened in September and it was that was scheduled for October. And the information we got is that the some of their customers that bought goods at the September auction, the September tender, had problems um, settling their payments and had problems paying and getting the payments approved by an unnamed bank. And as a precaution, Grib Diamonds decided not to hold their sale in October, which is obviously coming up in the next couple of weeks, which would have been coming up in the next couple of weeks, so that this doesn't happen again and so that the, the, the problems don't increase. We, are, we were not able to confirm whether this was directly a result of the fact that Grib is a Russian mine, um, it's certainly, if one were to speculate, one would say it probably is, but we don't know that for sure. And if it is, then it would be, you know, I don't, Avi, can you remember, I don't remember this happening before that, uh, I mean, obviously uh, our Rosa haven't been selling to the same extent that they were before the start of the war in Ukraine, but I'm, I'm not aware of anything like this happening uh, since the start of the war. 
Yeah, and we haven't heard of, well, GRIB has kind of flown under the radar in, um, or in the shadow of, of the sanctions um, that are placed on El Rosef um, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, to my knowledge, there are not sanctions on GRIB, but there, there are sanctions that are we know that the the initial sort of limits uh, restrictions on buying Russian goods was through the payment system, and it seems, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's very much a speculative call from us, and we should emphasize that it's our it's our speculation and sort of analysis of what might be going on behind the scenes. We don't have that confirmation at all, but it seems that there is. It has to do with those restrictions on on money transfer and making payments in dollars. At least through the through the international transfer system, that might have caused that bank to exert more caution than than before. But we haven't heard in the past that that Grip Diamonds had issues with its um, with its sales to um, until now. Right. So it's uh, it's something that we we're keeping an eye on. And a- as the conflict continues, we are hearing more. You know, we we're hearing more and more that that those Russian goods are coming to the market in some way. And so clearly, clearly, um, Elrosa is selling to manufacturers, whether it's through private deals and not through its usual contract sales. Those are not happening. Mm. But it seems that manufacturers at least do are, are looking to buy those goods um, to supply other markets outside of the U.S. Um, one assumes. Yes, although as you say, a lot of this is really very unclear because Elrosa hasn't been publishing any of its usual earnings reports since shortly after the war began uh, so really all the information we have we have is just from uh, it's just from the market and not from and not from them right right and we do miss their information I, I will say that much yes but it's understood why that dynamic is is occurring but again to to sort of move on and also you know there have been the odd interesting news items that, that have come our way and one name that always um, sparks our readers interest and our interest to write about it is forever mark the debeers brand and um, there was a, a plan to revamp forever marks um, strategy and how it how it supplies its goods but that, that announcement was met with some resistance from its customers and from its brand holders and so Joshua you, you wrote that story what what was the initial um, intention of forever mark and and what caused them to to renege on those plans right so a few months ago in fact just just Around the time of the JCK show in June, the Forevermark announced to its partners, that partners being customers and jewelers and companies that buy its goods wholesale and then offer them as you know, to consumers um, as jewelry. So they, they proposed that they were going to change the distrib- their distribution system for loose stones. So previously it was possible to buy loose diamonds from Forevermark and then put them in your own, own design jewelry. Um, Forevermark decided that it wanted more brand consistency and it didn't want to allow these partners to design their own jewelry using Forevermark diamonds. Seeing that from then you you would have to buy Forevermark designs jewelry. It wasn't actually clear to us if it was um Forevermark would actually produce, manufacture the jewelry or whether it was just that you had to follow Forevermark designs. I guess we should check that. But it was basically part of a consistency move, which kind of fits in with the wider thing that we've seen from the beers that they've been trying to sort of amalgamate their consumer facing brands and have more consistency and more, you know, for example, they added the name De Beers to Forevermark. It used to be called Forevermark. It's now called De Beers Forevermark. So our understanding is that the many partners, many Forevermark partners 
the beers for my partners were not so happy with this change. They liked the old system. They were already kind of rumbling about this back at the JCK show. Um, and now a couple of months later, they have done a U-turn on that and have decided to go ahead with their current, the existing system where you can still buy loose stones for forevermark. I know that uh, everything carries on as normal is not normally such an exciting headline, but I think there is a there was a degree of controversy behind this. Right, and it's um, I guess the from our point of view, the the as you say that they're maintaining their their old system is not necessarily a headline, but it was a very I think insightful story for us in that the forever mark customers and those who are who are carrying the brand really put up a fighter on uh, on on this and secondly that the beers is listening to them and that that's a good sign but then again you know it kind of makes me think of politicians sometimes that they put out a feeler in the market of they put out a tweet of something that's way unexpected and um, just to get to gauge the feel of of how the the public is might, might react to it and sometimes I, I wonder if if companies don't do the same thing yeah, the Ryanair budget airline they'll put out an you know uh, an announcement saying that we're getting rid of chairs on our plane. Everyone has to stand up on our plane, and you know obviously within a few days they have to cancel it because everyone hates the idea. Um, but in the meantime, they've got lots of press coverage. But three years later, they'll introduce it. Th- that's what I was getting at. That um, that we shouldn't dismiss the story as as has having ended. That uh, that it's clearly something that to be as is, is eyeing and yeah. and wants and will and perhaps will will try again or 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 ease its customers into its uh, strategic goals. Um, so it's something to look out for. So um, before we end, Joshua, we, we've had some really spectacular stones come to the market in the in this week. In fact, while we were on a, a, a little a short break for the for the Jewish New Year for Rosh Hashanah. Um, but we, we we subsequently covered today, in fact, as we're recording, that Christie's is bringing the, what they call the, the Fortune Pink Diamond to, to its Geneva auction in November. And uh, it's an 18.18 carat fancy vivid pink diamond that they are, they've got a, a, an estimated price range of 25 to $35 million, really beautiful stone. And that's our first taste of the Geneva auctions that we've had. And it's, it's always an exciting run up to the, to the Geneva auctions um, in, that are coming up in November. Have you had a chance to, to see the, the video, the promotion work that, that Christie's has put out? It's really astonishing piece. I will definitely take a look at it. What, what did you think, Avi? Well, firstly, they, they clearly are targeting the, the, the Far East in the Asian market for, for the stone. It's an um, 18.18 carat stone. Has They said in their press release that the number 18 has some significance in the Chinese market, in the, in the Far East. And um, what was a little disappointing for me is that we don't have the source yet of the stone. And, and I'm, I'm hoping that Christie's will reveal that in, in time, where it came from, what, uh, you know, who cut it, what, uh, what mine it came from. But it really is a, a really really rich and, and, and striking, beautiful looking looking piece. So we'll see um we'll see what sort of price they, they get for that at the auction. Um they they do have a history of selling beautiful pink stones. The Winston Pink Legacy is uh, was their record. It was also an eighteen carat fancy vivid pink that sold for fifty million dollars. So we'll see if it can uh, if they can match that. Um and that's something to look forward to. The other um beautiful stone that came to market was from 
Arctic Canadian Diamond Company, ACDCs. It's easier to say the acronym because I was a bit of a metalhead in my old days. But um, <laughs> they found a, a really stunning, fancy, vivid yellow diamond in, at the mine in Akati. And so that was a 71 carat uh, diamond. And again, they, they haven't revealed what sort of how they're going to sell it or when they're going to sell it, but I'm sure it'll be in the next quarter. And uh, again, something that I'm looking out for in the in the coming months um, ahead of the holiday season. Is there anything that stands out for you, Joshua, that um, that we should look out for or that you're looking out in in the next month or two? I think actually what I'm looking out for is what's happening this week as we speak, which is the Singapore show, the September jewelry show that usually takes place in Hong Kong, but hasn't hasn't really taken place, or at least not in its normal form since before COVID. And I was actually surprised how many people are going. Um, it seems like, like it's maybe not the same turnout that Hong Kong show would normally get, but it, people are treating it as a major show. So I think I will be looking out for whether it was a successful show what sort of market trends it signaled and whether the Hong Kong show will be returning next year, which actually is becoming more of a more of a possibility because the Hong Kong government has just reduced the quarantine requirements and the testing requirements for entering Hong Kong. So that does kind of open the door mm. to a possible return of the show in a normal in its normal place next year. Right. And um, when they first announced that the show was moving to Singapore, we, we kind of joked and, uh, and, and or, or speculated that people wouldn't be going. And I've also been surprised at the, at the response in terms of that you are hearing of dealers, particularly in India, a few Israeli dealers as well, and from Belgium that are attending the Singapore show. But I think the big question, and, and that's, that, that question lingers whether the show is in Singapore or in Hong Kong, is whether Chinese buyers will be able to attend. You know, it's fine for exhibitors to go and for dealers to go, but it's really the Chinese buyer that drives the activity at the at the traditional Hong Kong yeah. show and those travel restrictions I think are still in place in China in mainland China and so I think that's the big announcement that we're waiting to hear yeah. in terms of the success of the show or, or for the Hong Kong market in general so yeah so there's there's a lot to look forward to a lot to to keep an eye out for um, Joshua and um, so thanks very much for your insights and your knowledge of the news as our news editor and for updating us on all those stories that we've mentioned. Um, it's been great to have you and chatting with you in the last half hour. Likewise. Thank you, Avi. It's been enjoyable. Absolutely. And um, thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, we look forward to speaking again soon and have a great few weeks ahead. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Rathport Diamond Podcast. For more discussions, news, and analysis about the diamond industry, visit us on diamonds.net. Follow Rapport Group on Instagram and follow Rapport on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to get future episodes.